0: We're going to start today with a bit of a reflection exercise. I want you to think of a person or two that you really admire. Someone who inspires you. Who motivates you to be the best person you can be. Someone you look up to. What qualities would you like to emulate in that person? What qualities are you trying to embody in yourself? If you are a parent or one who invests in children, what qualities or characteristics are you hoping to help cultivate in the next generation? Now, I want you to think about people that you see in places of power today. People who hold power in some of the institutions that you are impacted by. Powerful people in our corporations, it could be people of power in media. It could be people of power in government. People who fill your news feed. Do they share the qualities that you aspire to, that you were first identifying? And how does the answer to that question make you feel? I think we live in an interesting time when many of us potentially answer no to that question I just posed. That those in the highest offices in our corporate structures, starting it has to be said most notably with the person in the Oval Office, don't actually demonstrate the personal character that most of us would hope to embody for ourselves or teach our children. And so we feel this profound dissonance, if that is true, between seeing those who seem to be succeeding, those who are holding powerful level, levers of control in our lives also being the people who demonstrate character that we may find troubling at best, abhorrent at worst. I have to be honest, I remember the, I remember the moment, the sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach I felt a couple days after the news broke that then candidate Trump had been caught on tape bragging about sexually assaulting women. Now, as a survivor of sexual assault myself, at first I welcomed the news break of the story. It felt like an important truth that was revealing of a candidate for office's character in a way that seemed undeniable and clear, and it would have to have consequences. But a couple days later came the sinking feeling as I watched him joyfully dismissed the criticism coming his way, casually calling it all locker room talks, celebrating the um, immense support he was still getting. And that's where the sinking feeling came. This realization that it was clear who this person was to everyone, but that people would stand with him anyway. And I have to be honest, that feeling's continued in some way over the last 15 months or so. And it's chipped away at my own optimism In our democratic system, and in its place, at times I've found my heart cloaked in this like sad kind of cynicism, this skepticism that anyone really cares about integrity anymore has seemed to sink in. And I know I'm not the only one. Saturday Night Live recently featured one of the most, I would say, despairing skits I have seen in the last few years, maybe ever. Ever. And it's around this fictional TV game show called What Even Matters Anymore. Did any of you see this? Ugh, you can YouTube it. So the sketch is of a game show in which the host is asking that question, what even matters anymore, basically, to her guests about various things that have happened throughout this presidency, and then imagines, or things that she imagined are quite likely to happen in the future, and wonders if any of them would ever even matter in terms of consequences for the current leadership. Would any of them making a di- make a difference in terms of people's support, in terms of how things are set up? And according to the game show, the answer is always despairingly no. It wouldn't matter. In the sketch, the host like, deteriorates before our eyes as she becomes more and more convinced that there just is no accountability, even hope for it, anymore. So she ends the show just trying to comfort herself through getting hugs from her guests and a bottle of wine. It's true. It is true that if we see leadership that doesn't reflect our values or worse, that actually brings harm to others, we are right to be concerned. It is true that leaders have significant influence. It's not just the power to enact policies. They can even influence the way we think. What our brains become focused on, where they spend their energy, what we're exposed to regularly— Psychiatrists have told us that affects the way we frame the world, the way we process information, the way we behave. And sadly, in the case of the last year, we have seen the result of toxic, divisive politics, not just in the media, but in all kinds of everyday interactions. The Southern Poverty Law Center has been tracking things in the last year like a very sharp rise of incidents of bullying in kindergarten through 12th grade classrooms. They've noted a real surge in the identification of hate groups. The Anti-Defamation League has seen a threefold increase in the last year of racist flyers, stickers, and banners being put on college campuses. It's true. We do have a real crisis on our hands in terms of the current cultural climate. But it is not true that history would demonstrate that thus, all is lost. That if our leaders don't actually model kindness, compassion, empathy, justice, integrity, nobody will. That's not true. In fact, as people of Jesus-centered faith, we actually have inherited a tradition in which people of faith have had very different understandings about what it means to be human, what it means to live in community, how we ought best to conduct our lives in order to promote human flourishing, than those in power around them. That is the tradition we come from. The Jewish faith arose in a world in which the surrounding cultural perspectives on personal character were very different than what many of us would consider acceptable. Many neighboring ancient, many neighbors of the ancient Israelites practiced child sacrifice, very patriarchal abuse of women, ritual prostitution in the name of worship, In the laws of neighboring nations, the wealthy were permitted to harshly execute the poor for petty crimes like theft or even receiving a stolen good from someone else. Women could be executed for humiliating their husbands. The law of Moses at the time was quite progressive in its care for the vulnerable and its restraint in punishment by comparison. Jesus also was born into a world where leadership was corrupt, and they held all the power, maintaining law and order through brutal violence and intimidation. Israel was under Roman occupation, and those in the leadership of Rome did not reflect Jewish values. They didn't worship Yahweh. They didn't value marriage in the same way. They didn't practice care for the widows and orphans. But Jesus didn't call his followers to play by the same game as the Romans, to overthrow the government through violence, through political manipulation and calculation. Instead, he called them to a different kind of insurgency, a different kind of revolution, a revolution of character. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is a classic example of a call to an alternative way of living, to actually focus on one's personal character, not just on the outward behavior, how we speak, how we spend our money, what we do with our bodies, but actually what was happening internally too, and trying to bring those things into alignment. In his teaching, Jesus was encouraging his followers to live differently than the cultural models they saw of people in power. And that included both the political power holders in Rome and the religious elites in Israel. Seeming to believe that the kind of morally, this kind of morally connected life, this commitment to character, actually had the power to change the world. Unlike the Romans, Jesus described his followers, his revolution, not as a band of conquerors, as influencers. He described them as salt that could preserve and flavor the world. He described them as light that could illuminate dark spaces. One of the most interesting voices I've found inspiring this year comes from the Reverend William Barber. We have a picture you can put up, Chris. William Barber is a black pastor and activist from North Carolina. He came to prominence in recent years as the leader of the Moral Monday movement in North Carolina, a racially diverse coalition of demonstrators fighting back against attacks on voting rights, living wages, and health care for people in North Carolina. He also leads an organization called Repairers of the Breach that is calling people of faith backgrounds, all faith backgrounds, as well as no faith background, to join together for what Reverend Barber calls a moral resistance. By this he means an active resistance to systems of oppression rooted in a moral vision for the world. Repairs of the Breach describe their vision this way. We declare that the moral public concerns of our faith traditions are how our society treats the poor, women, LGBTQ people, children, workers, immigrants, communities of color, and the sick. And our deepest moral traditions point to equal protection under the law, the desire for peace within and among nations, the dignity of all people, and the responsibility to care for our common home. This is activism rooted in a deep moral spirituality. And they're organizing with all people who share the moral vision, whatever their background, whatever their faith belief. In fact, Ginny and I are actually, across the country, Ginny and I are getting to go see Reverend Barber this week in Berkeley. Woohoo! I'm so excited. Yes! Um, so this idea of moral resistance, I would posit, is completely in line with the work of the Jewish prophets, the work of Jesus, as well as the early church followers who followed, leaders who followed him. Now, I want to be clear, though, when I talk about being, com, coming, becoming concerned again, afresh, with issues of character or morality, I am not talking about religious legalism or moralism. I think, unfortunately, we've lost our way in some ways because Christian morality, in quotes, has gotten tangled up in systems of power instead of being used to check systems of power. Does that make sense? Rather, it's become used by many institutions, often the church and those that are complicit with it, to control people, to oppress people, rather than to bring freedom, joy, life. But Jesus' goal in inspiring people with a moral vision was not to bring oppression, but to bring freedom. Yahweh was not giving the law to bring slavery and bondage, but to bring life. Jesus, as a fulfillment of the law, came to live and embody it and empower his followers to live differently through the Spirit, not so that they would be enslaved to this legalistic framework of rules, but so they could have a path for living that brings life to themselves and to others in their community, I have come that you may have life, Jesus said, and have it to the full, abundant life. I've talked about this year being for us a season of reforming, re-form, reforming in our structures, in our communal practices at Haven. This is part of what we're trying with this change of service and introducing new ways to be in community but also reforming personally. And over the next couple months, as we enter the season of Lent, which technically begins February 14th, but we're kind of getting a head start on it now, um, we're going to be thinking about this idea of personal reforming. And my hope is that all of us can go on a journey with Jesus of considering our own spiritual formation, taking a deeper look at the forming of our own character, How might Jesus be calling each of us to consider our own formation as people of faith? How might the character we're developing in ourselves help us participate in the moral resistance? So this is just an opening to a conversation we're going to be having leading up to Easter for the next couple months. But as we open up this conversation, I just want to take today to take a look briefly at some things that Jesus had to say about why this concern with how we live, with our character, actually matters from his point of view. And it comes, the text we're going to look at, comes at the end of a chunk of teaching in which Jesus is calling his followers to bring their actions and motives into alignment with the heart of God and influence the world around them through the way they live. This is Luke's version, his telling of the Sermon on the Mount material that we're going to look at. This is kind of like Jesus' capper. This is why this kind of teaching matters. Okay? So that's what we're going to look at. Three little little portions of one um, passage. So starting with Luke 6, verse 39. He also told them a parable. Can a blind person guide a blind person? Will not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above the teacher... But everyone who is fully qualified will be like the teacher. Who do you see? Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, friend, let me take out the speck in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Here's my takeaway that I think applies to this conversation from that first segment. We need to attend, I I think I meant to write attend, to our own character before we try to influence anyone else's. We need to attend to our own character before we try to influence anyone else's. you got to start with yourself. That's basically, I think, what Jesus is trying to say. Jesus is affirming that character in leadership matters. We have the power to influence others who are following us. He is saying that is true. It's true for all of us in various places in life. It is not just true for me, the person with a microphone. We all have spheres of influence in our work, in our family life, in church, in the neighborhood, and if we have roommates, whatever it is. The more influential we are, the more important it is that we are self-reflective. Because we will lead people somewhere. And if we're not careful, we might lead them into a pit. Right? I got to be honest, one of the most painful lessons of parenting is how much I struggle (laughs) personally. How much it reveals the weaknesses in my own character, like epically, like nothing ever before. I'm trying to cultivate patience in my kids. And then there are days I epically lose my patience. And my kids are the first to notice the hypocrisy and point it out. After almost 12 years of parenting, I am still regularly confronted with the reality that I need more maturity. I need more wisdom. I need more patience. I need more empathy. I need more kindness. I need to be daily in touch with a source of those things. To actually practice them on a very moment-to-moment basis, particularly because they are the things I'm trying to cultivate in my children. In the same way, if you're like me, you might have some strong opinions about the hypocrisy of some of our leadership. You might feel the need to see an alternative kind of leadership arise to help shape and influence the world. But my critique, is only as solid as my own willingness to humbly deal with my own stuff, right? The ways that I mess up, the ways that I fall short of the ideal, I need to become aware of the logs in my eyes and to be regularly working with Jesus and the loving, accepting, gracious people that Jesus has brought into my life, that's y'all, to keep my own eyes clear, I want to have any integrity or hope of actually participating in the rising up of a different kind of leadership. Amen? We need to attend to our own character before we can influence anyone else's. Jesus goes on, picking up with verse 43. No good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good, and the evil person out of evil treasure produces evil, for it is the abund- out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And this is my second little takeaway from this next nugget that Jesus gives. What's inside will come out eventually. Conduct follows character. Conduct follows character. If we want to produce good fruit, we need to be tending the, the, the tree from the beginning, right? You can't just fake it till you make it. It doesn't work that way when it comes to character eventually what's really in you will come out it will be evident to all so what kind of fruit are we talking about what is the good fruit how do we know it right well the apostle paul talks about that galatians 5 but the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience i think we have this kindness do i have this maybe i don't have this okay i'll just read it for you the fruit of the spirit love joy peace Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. One more time. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there are no law. So are we producing these things or something else? That's the test. Are we producing love or mistrust? suspicion? Are we producing joy or fear? Are we producing peace or conflict? Patience or striving? Kindness or cruelty? Self-control or volatility? If we can't testify clearly that that fruit is being born in our lives, there may be still some work to do internally. That's the temperature gauge. So think of the people that came to mind for you in the beginning. Why were they admirable to you? How would you say the fruit that you see born out in their life reflects the character they've been cultivating inwardly? Is it in alignment? And is that part of why you admire them? What does that look like? News came out this week that Tom Hanks has just been cast in a film I'm really excited about, being made about Fred Rogers, the man behind Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. The film will specifically focus on the story of the friendship that was formed between Mr. Rogers and journalist Tom Junid, who was writing a profile on the, at, t- at the time, 70-year-old television star in 1998. And he found his life writing this profile on Mr. Rogers really changed. Now he went in, Junid went in cynical, he lived, it was in another moment of cultural cynicism, this was the year the whole Clinton impeachment drama was going down, 1998, but Junid's cynicism about this man who, you know, talks to kids and says silly things, was broken down, just spending a little time with him. The profile he wrote, which you can find online, I read it yesterday, it is stunning. Fred Rogers, if you don't know, was a man of deep faith. He had actually been ordained, gone to seminary. And he believed at his core that all people, including children, but not limited to children, were worthy of care and love. And in his time yeah, and it's we're having issues here. In his time with Mr. Rogers, Tom Junid saw the way that Mr. Rogers interacted with people. And he could feel that what he emits on the TV show. Again, in a time, in a moment, where, you know, a lot of leaders just aren't what they are on TV. And that was very much being talked about in the moment. But here was a person who everything he said on TV, everything, the whole persona he presented was just authentically real the astonishment with with people the kindness the curiosity about the world and about whoever he was with at the moment all of that was completely consistent with how he conducted himself off camera as well it wasn't a show this is the cover this is the cover of the story he wrote Tom June had found that Fred Rogers was really a person of deep humility, consistency, and character. He woke every morning, prayed for two hours every day for the many people he cared for or the people who would write him, email him that he's never met. He would pray for them for two hours every day. And then he would go swimming every day for like 40, 50 years, didn't drink or eat meat. He weighed the same 143 pounds his whole adult life every day. And he approached everyone he met with this kind of genuine gratitude and care, and it was contagious. This is just one little anecdote that he shares in that profile. Once upon a time, a man named Fred Rogers decided he wanted to live in heaven. Heaven is the place where good people go when they die, but this man, Fred Rogers, didn't want to go to heaven. He wanted to live in heaven here now in this world and so one day when he was talking about all the people he had loved in this life he looked at me and said the connections we make in the course of a life maybe that's what heaven is tom we make so many connections here on earth look at us i've just met you but i'm investing in who you are and who you will be and i can't help it it's beautiful What's inside will come out eventually. Our conduct follows our character. Well, Jesus says one more little tidbit here in this passage. So let's, let's read these last few verses. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I will show you what someone, who, someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. That one is like a man building a house who dug deeply and laid the foundation on rock. And when a flood arose, the river burst against that house but could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who has built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the river burst against it, immediately it fell and great was the ruin of that house. So here we have our third and final metaphor. Two builders. One digs deeply, takes his time, diligent with his work, doesn't cut any corners, doesn't worry about just getting something up quickly that looks huge, wants to make sure it's done right. That's different than the second builder. He seems much more invested, interested in just having something admirable that everyone can see as soon as possible. The best house ever. Wants it to be admired tomorrow? Taking the time to dig deep, find a solid foundation? Who needs that? That's for suckers. So his house gets done quicker. Might be impressive to look at. It was probably a lot cheaper, right? He thinks that that first builder, he wasted his money, wasted his time. This guy knows what's up. But the second builder wasn't taking into account what could be coming. He was not ready for a flood. When the river swelled, when the water rose around his house, it couldn't withstand the flooding. The first house stood strong. It had a foundation that was solid. The second did not. Now, Jesus tells us. He interprets the parable for us. He tells us who these people are supposed to be. The first builder is who? The one who hears Jesus' words and actually acts on them. The person that recognizes Jesus has the words of life. And these people say, I want life. The second builder is the one who hears and doesn't act. The one he thinks he doesn't need it. He doesn't need forgiveness. He doesn't need character development. He doesn't need to make any adjustments. And in the end, it costs him. And this is my final takeaway. Hearing about character... I think we have it, is not the same as living it. Hearing about character is not the same as living it. Being exposed to truth is not the same as being impacted by it. Truth only benefits us if we take the time and do the work to respond accordingly. Amen? Truth only benefits us if we take the time and do the work to respond accordingly. And so all three of these passages, one after another, I think are taking another angle at this same big point. Character matters. It matters. It might not seem like it matters in the short term. It might seem like lack of character wins. It feels like that right now. Right? We might see the short-term victory. Like the, like the person who doesn't invest in character has a great house. But those wins are short-term, okay? This is short-term thinking. Character development is a long-term game. Character development is a long-term game. The leader whose vision is blocked looks like a good leader until he falls into a pit, and it's obvious he's blind, right? It takes some time, though, for that to happen. The fruit on the tree right? It takes time for it to root, to blossom, to grow, to ripen. All of those things need to happen before you can tell if it's good fruit or not, right? The house with the foundation takes longer to build, and on a sunny day, it doesn't look any different than the house with no foundation, but in time, the truth will be revealed. Once the storm comes, that inevitably does. Only one house is left standing, So if this is true, if we would do well to take some time to attend to our own character in this revolutionary assertion that it actually does matter, how could we move forward? I'm going to end with two ideas for what we'll be thinking about in the weeks to come. The first is to pay attention to who is influencing us. Pay attention to who is influencing us. Who are we following? I have to confess I have become too much of an NPR junkie. I listen to too many podcasts. I need to dial it back a bit. It's become a little too much because I recognize that people I don't want shaping my mind and my spirit are are taking up a lot of bandwidth. And that is not a healthy practice for me. I need more time focusing on who I want to be influencing me and not just consuming who media is telling me influences me. Amen? It's important to have alternative influences. I'm not saying I should check out altogether. I think it is important to be engaged with what's going on in the world. Don't hear me saying I should turn it off, but I think I need to turn it off some more than I do now. And I think I need to spend more time on alternative influences. And this is where meditating on the teachings of Jesus can be super helpful. Not from this legalistic re- like way of thinking, like, you have to do this, this, and this because you have to spend so many hours in the Bible today or you're not a good follower of Jesus. I'm not saying that. I am saying from a wisdom perspective, I need to be in the Bible more. I need to be praying more. I need to be doing things that will feed my spirit more because I need that, in order to be connected to Jesus. Does that make sense? It's centered set, right? We've talked about this before, being centered set, not bounded set. If we want our arrow pointed towards Jesus, if that's the goal, not jumping into some circle, some static, okay, are you in this group or out, but this like sense of, I'm on a journey, and I'm trying to move more towards Jesus. What are the things in my life that turn my arrow in a different direction? and what are the things in my life that actually help me move it back to where I want to be headed, right? So that's paying attention to who is influencing us. That's something I, I'm like inviting us all to be more reflective about in the next couple months. And if we find a thing that feels off balance, what are some new practices we could incorporate to try to, to, try to help that? The second thing I would call us to is cultivating an interactive connection with a living God in the midst of our daily challenges. Cultivating an interactive connection with a living God in the midst of our daily challenges. How was Jesus so able to just like calmly, zenly live all the things he preached in the midst of a crazy world with Roman oppression and, and you know corrupt synagogue leaders? How was he able to do that? How was he able to cultivate so much integrity How were those who followed him able to? People like Paul, who were able to maintain actually like a a quite cheerful spirit in Jesus in the midst of prison, persecution. I think it's at the core, this idea of the interactive connection with the living God rooted in the gift of the spirit. So this is what we're going to be focusing on this Lent. We're going to have our Sunday gatherings where we can talk about, you know, we'll have a few more teachings on just kind of classic Christian disciplines, faithfulness in relationships, generosity, things like that, practices about how we can do those things, not, again, in this, like, legalistic way, but just, I hope, in an effort to turn our arrows, to build our foundations a little more, you know, strong, strengthen them. And then we're going to have a couple daily guides um, in the blue ocean world, the little network we're a part of, um, Lent is often, uh, you know, we really like kind of celebrate it as an opportunity to, to lean in to, um, to what some people call a leap of faith, where we actually like commit to some daily practices or multiple times a week in ways that we might not. Um, and so a number of churches um, like to produce like a, bi- a Bible guide or a, a guide of prayer practices, something like that, that could kind of help you throughout the week. Um, you know, I'm not in a place where I can do that right now, but we got some friends who put some great materials out. So I'm hoping that those will be a resource. Um, I have both, two, two various things I'm going to kind of share with you all, and you can see what works for you, and if you like any of them, great. Um, one, our friends at the River in uh, Manhattan, they're doing a Lenten series on the Sermon on the Mount, um, which I feel like is very much kind of in line with this conversation we're having. And so they're going to have some Bible reflections you can be doing throughout the week on that. Um, and then my friends at Blue Ocean Ann Arbor um, are doing a guide related to praying what's called the Serum Prayer, which is a traditional prayer, maybe as old as the 8th century, that I would say is very much connected to the second thing I was talking about, the cultivating of the interactive connection in daily life. Okay? So you can go back and forth between those. You could use them both. You could use one for one week and one for the other. You can find something that works for you totally different altogether. (coughs) Um, But that's the idea, that I'm going to be giving you some tools. You can look for them in the emails um, as Lent starts um, that will hopefully kind of part you know, an, an addition to the Sunday teachings that we'll have things going on throughout the, the six weeks of Lent that will help us really kind of have this engaged conversation about who are we? How do we be in alignment with the things God's calling us to? And we're going to end that with this Serum prayer, okay? This, like I said, this comes from the 8th century. Um, it was prayed traditionally by Christians who I think are looking for that interactive connection to actually make a difference in the way that they moment-to-moment live, okay? So before we take a moment for conversation, this is where I want to end today, okay? It's just giving us an opportunity to pray this together. So, will you pray with me? God, be in my head and in my understanding. God, be in my eyes and in my looking. God, be in my mouth and in my speaking. God, be in my heart and in my thinking. God, be at my end and in my departing. Amen.